that kind of serves as a, uh, a good anthem that we've had for the past couple of weeks, church. You guys have heard us talking about you know, Sabbath keeping and temple building the past couple chapters of Exodus. You really can't do that well if we can't declare that God, Jireh, is enough. Right? Like if he's not sufficient for us, then we're going to be looking elsewhere for whatever we feel like we're going to be needing in life. So we have to be able to declare as his people this morning, God, you, you are enough. Um, that's very difficult to do when you've got a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's not a very easy thing for us to say that God is enough. It's, in fact, it's, it's a discipline. And it's, it's something that takes a lot of effort and a lot of time and energy for us to be able to say, okay, God, I know I really want to take care of this, or okay, God, this thing is really big and really overwhelming, but you are enough, and I will trust you in this. And this, guys, is where we have been at as we are wrapping up the book of Exodus. We, we've been learning the entire book about who God is and who his people are and how much he's saying, them, trust me, trust me, trust me. Oh, by the way, trust me. Like, keep trusting in who I am in this life that I have for you. And as we've gotten to the last five chapters or so, now we're kind of moving into the, the more practical application piece, right? If we live in this covenant, if we have this life, what do we do? Chapter 35 kind of showed us big picture. What do we do as followers of Christ? We engage in this rhythm of Sabbath keeping and temple building, right? Sabbath keeping being remembering and praising who God is. Temple building being allowing him to build his image out within us. This is what he's asked us to do. Chapter 36, we looked and said, okay, if that's what God wants us to do, then how should we engage the rest of the world? What does he want other people to do? And surprise, it's the exact same answer. So chapter 36 showed us, hey, what God is trying to do in the Holy Spirit in us when he's leading us to engage other people, he also wants them to keep his Sabbath and build his temple. So then chapter 37 kind of brings us to the point of saying, okay, what does it take to be able to do that? And, and last week kind of introduced one piece of that puzzle. If, if we're going to live a life of discipleship where we are doing our best to grow into the likeness and the image of God and to be leading others in the same and remembering and praising who he is on this journey, we said last week, okay, that, that's got to start with allowing him to bring our lives under his design, right? Acknowledging that God has a, a structure and order to the world that he made, right? He created things to be certain ways. And we said, well, hey, we, we have to choose to humbly allow God to build that within us. And we, we also talked about how that takes the work of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that God can't come and say, hey, I need you to do this, and we can't just go do it on our own. Nor, and we talked about this last week, nor can we expect one who has not been filled with the Holy Spirit to suddenly be able to start doing the image of God, right? It, it is the work of the Spirit. So when we engage others, we need to engage them with the Spirit and lead the, them to be filled with the Spirit. And it really kind of leads us today to talk about testimony. If what it takes is for us to bring our lives under God's design, right, then when people look at our lives, what should they be seeing? Right? I guess kind of the short answer would be, well, God's design. Clearly, Jordan, that, that's what you talked about last week. But I want to kind of unpack that a little bit more 
this morning. If we're about discipleship, what do our lives say? And you guys are, are probably aware of this already, but I'll repeat it. It's, it's more than just our words and our actions. It, it, if we are truly about bearing the image of God and praising him and remembering him, this temple-building, Sabbath-keeping rhythm, what if somebody looks at our lives, what would our lives say? And this is the testimony that Moses is going to tell us in chapter 38 this morning. This is worth it. This is worth passing on. This is what all this discipleship points to. That discipleship involves testifying about our faithfulness to pursue bear God's image and his faithfulness to fulfill his reconciliation promise. Another way to think about this would be to say, I want to testify to how I'm striving to be faithful to God about how he is always faithful to me. It involves testifying about our faithfulness to pursue bearing God's image. God, I'm not perfect, but God, in all things, I want your image to be made out in my life. And also testifying about how, you know, to everybody, guys, God is faithful. God is faithful to redeem. God is faithful to reconcile. This is who he is. So we're going to begin in chapter 38, verse 1. And you're going to notice that at some point in here, we actually get a little pause in all the directions and all the he made this, he made this. That's where we're going to kind of focus in mostly this morning because, man, whenever something just interjects a really long train of narrative, you've got to pay attention to why it's there. So beginning in chapter 38, verse 1, I'll let you guys see if you can pick up on where the shift is. Begins by saying, he, talking about Bezalel, made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. And he made all the utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. Now he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he made the court. For the south side of the hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the, the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side there were hangings of a hundred cubits and their twenty pillars, their twenty bases of bronze, and their hooks and pillars and fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits and their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. The hangings of one side were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twine linen. And the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver. And all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. 
And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with the needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was 20 cubits long and 5 cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court around it were of bronze. Now these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, who was an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, also by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is a half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who is listed in the records, from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were casting for the bases of the sanctuary and for the bases of the veil. 100 bases for the 100 talents, a talent a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar, and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. Father, as we are really getting close to the end of all these directions, all these blueprints, all these he made this, he made that, it looked like this, it looked like that statements. Father, sometimes uh, if we're honest, it sounds like we're reading the same thing over and over and over and over again. Lord, there is a value. You're not just being redundant. Father, you are really trying to show us who you are and what that means for us, who we are to be. So, Lord, as we pay attention yet again to a passage of Scripture, it feels like we've heard a million times, Father, may you open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our hearts to understand, Lord, that you haven't finished your work in Exodus yet because you haven't finished your work with your people yet. Maybe... May we hear you today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Did you guys catch where the shift takes place? Somewhere around verse 21, you get this pause from all the directions, all the temple. And we're told in verse 21, it says, These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, and they're also the responsibility of the priests. So Moses pauses right in the middle and says, okay, everything I have been talking about, I'm about to summarize for you. And everything that we're about to talk about is going to kind of fall under this. It's, it's a summary saying, okay, okay, I know I've probably lost you at some point. Let me bring you back and tell you what I'm trying to get across. 
Moses is, is really about to summarize like five chapters worth of material. And Moses counts it as so important. He says these are the records of the tabernacle. And he calls it the tabernacle of the testimony. For those of you who have been here faithfully, who have heard these blueprint chapters over and over and over again, Moses says it's all trying to point to something. That the tabernacle itself is not just a physical location where things are going to take place, where people are going to gather, where stuff is going to happen. There is a testimony that's going to come out of this. When people see the tabernacle and they see what's being done, they see the building itself, Moses says something important is being communicated to the people of Israel and to the rest of the world. So churches, we are thinking about what it is to be the people of God, what this life of discipleship looks like, we have to consider, too, we are living out some sort of witness to the rest of the world. That when people look at who we are and what we're trying to do, something should be getting across to them, okay? Moses says, let's pay attention. Let's figure out what is this testimony. And the first piece of it is simply that our, it involves our faithfulness to pursue bearing God's image. Right, then everything we're doing and saying and undertaking as individuals, but also of the church, we are trying to show others, hey, we, we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but there is a God who is holy, who is righteous, who we believe has made the world and designed it, that there is a goodness to the way that he made it. We're trying to get to that. We, we want that. We want that to be made out. Moses begins this chapter with 20 verses of more of these blueprints, right? Reiterating the design over and over and over again. Going back to chapter 35, it's, it's about four and a half chapters that repeat what we saw from like chapter 25. It started about halfway in there through 30, somewhere in there. Moses is repeating 10 verses. About 25% of Exodus is just the design of the tabernacle. So if you guys have been thinking, I feel like I've been hearing about it a lot, it's because it does come up a lot. But Moses says, look, keep reminding yourself. This, this temple building, this Sabbath dwelling, this is key. This reminding ourselves and others of who God is and allowing his spirit to build out his image. He says, this is the testimony that you want to be bearing before the rest of the world. And he just, he keeps pulling up this idea even after he gives the summary statement. So as the summary comes in verse 21, Moses then in verse 22 says, look, remember, in all these details, Bezalel has been faithful to do what the Lord commanded. He's been faithful to pursue what this image is. And we saw a couple weeks ago how Bezalel is bringing the people with him. Moses says, don't forget Guys, a whole point of this testimony, we are about bearing God's image. We are bringing people to do this likewise. Verse 23, he mentions how Aholiav is with Bezalel doing this as well, right? So this, this is a picture of discipleship taking place. Verse 24 through verse 29, we get the amounts of all the gold, silver, bronze that's been collected for the building of the tabernacle. And I, I got to be honest, there's, there's some points, and you guys don't get to see this because this is in like my own personal study, but I, I get a I get a good kick out of myself sometimes when I'm reading through the Word and I'm preparing to teach. Because I start doing all this research as to, okay, well, how much is a shekel and how much is a talent and what would that correlate to today? I, I got really caught up in, okay, how much stuff was there and what does it look like? And then I realized 
that's, that's not really what Israel would have been, would have been seeing. I, I won't tell you how much time I wasted on that, that rabbit trail. But essentially, Moses is saying, I didn't, I didn't put that there for you to think about how much stuff was there. Israel would have heard this and gone, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we did when we left Egypt. If you remembered in chapter 12, verse 36, this was a while ago, when Israel left Egypt, they plundered Egypt on the way out. God enabled them to take a lot of materials, all this bronze, all this gold. Remember, this was a people that had been in slavery for 430 years. They didn't just have copious piles of gold and silver and beautiful yarn, all the stuff to dye it. They didn't have any of this stuff. God allowed them to take it from Egypt on their way out. And then now God is saying, look, don't, you're not hoarding it. I didn't give it to you to go do whatever you wanted with it. I gave it to you to turn around and now glorify me with it. A reminder, Israel has literally taken what they've been given by God and they've been using it to bear his image. Moses says, this is the testimony I'm trying to make sure you guys remember. And I love in verse 21, he says, it's the responsibility of the priests to make sure that this, this testimony is being carried out. If you guys remember, I think it was in chapter 29, chapter 28, somewhere in there, when God was giving the directions for the priests. And you and I looked at, okay, who are the priests today? And we said, well, first Peter tells us it's us. We are the chosen priests. We are a nation, a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy chosen people. So when we read this, we go, oh, Oh, this is not just a testimony for Israel. That Moses is saying it is our responsibility as followers of Christ that the testimony we set before the world is one of trying to pursue the image of God. And to do so in a way where others, as they're intrigued, as they go, who is this God that you're pursuing that they have a space to come alongside with us? And I realized something big this week, church, and it may not be big for you, but as we've been talking about, I mean, how often the past month have you heard us read the phrase, he made, he made, he fastened, he covered, he overlaid, all this, he did, he did, he did, he did. It, it, it's, it's been a ton. But one thing I noticed has been missing throughout all of this, and I don't think it's by accident, is that Moses never says how. Never says what tools Bezalel used. Never actually explicitly says like, okay, so the, the courtyard wall, was got, it's got red, it's got blue, it's got uh, purple, it's got white. It doesn't say where the pattern is or what it looked like. The how is missing. And I realized it's not an accident that Moses doesn't tell the priests to tell how the work was done as part of the testimony that the, the Israelites were to have to the rest of the world. Emphasizing the how would have made it really easy for people to think, well, what God's really after then is how the work is done. This narrative of production, right? Doing the right work. We've seen in Exodus that the narrative of God's kingdom of reconciliation and the narrative of production, trying to do the right thing or doing more things, they're incompatible. They don't line up. 
And the, the imagery that I thought about, well, does this make sense today? I realized, okay, I actually do this every time I'm training somebody to drive a bus, okay? If you come over to Blacksburg Transit and work with me, I will teach you how to drive uh, all of the vehicles that we have. And the way that I usually start on like your first day in the parking lot, we've got all the cones out. I'm going to teach you, okay, you're going to watch for this thing. When these things line up, you're going to start to make your turn. You're like, I'm going to be very detailed as far as telling you how to do the work. By day two, the, the balance of how and just kind of like figure it out for yourself has come down a little bit. By day three, when we're out on the road, I'm not really telling people how to drive the bus. At that point, I'm just saying, hey, when we turn right here, you're going to have a hazard right there. You're going to have a hazard right there. Think about how you know the bus turns. Figure it out. If they hit a curb, we stop the bus and we fill out some paperwork. But, but truthfully, when I'm teaching someone to drive a bus, if I'm only always telling them what to do, I'm not really making them into the image of a, a good BT bus operator who values safety, courtesy, reliability, and the environment. I'm just making them like me. I'm teaching them how to do things the way I would do them. And church, let, let me be careful because this sounds really good, right? If you're saying, well, Jordan, you're a trainer, that means you're supposed to be a good driver. Like, it, it wouldn't be the end of the world if people drove like you. I'd say thank you for your praise and admiration. That's true. But we, we think the same way in the church, right? Well, if I'm following Christ and I'm telling people to do things the way that I would do them, I'm a follower of Christ, so like, they would be doing what a follower of Christ does. Like, how, how is that different? It's different, church, because it forgets the fact that I am still learning the image of God. I am not a perfect bus driver. There is well-documented paperwork that will tell you I am not a perfect bus operator. We are not perfect in bearing the image of God. There is only one who has ever done that, and that is Christ. Church, Moses is telling us that the most convicting testimony we can share with others is not just by always telling what to do so that they do things like us, but showing them who they are. In fact, Moses is even saying it is the responsibility of the priests to make sure that the people know who God is more than they just know what God wants us to do. And the more I thought about this week, I realized, you know, it, it's, it's a humbling reality, but it's, it's true. If I trained everyone at Blacksburg Transit to drive the bus just like me, they would have the exact same blind spots and the exact same struggles that I do, that I would not be leading them to be a good BT operator, I just lead them to be like me. Church, it is the same way with us. We will not lead the world to bear God's image if we are leading them to be bearing our image. Even though we are trying to bear the image of God, we're going to have them to have the same blind spots as we do, the same errors, the same struggles. If we engage others with a testimony more concerned with correction than more concerned with identity. Practically, what this would look like is rather than just telling people, well, a real Christian would do this, or a real Christian would not do this, we would say things like, hey, I see you struggling with this. Let me share with you the hope of the Christ that I have that addresses this, okay? We don't want to make others in our image. There's only one who is fully in the image of God, who is perfect, and who has done everything perfect for us, and that is Christ. So discipleship involves testifying 
Not about telling other people what to do, but about showing them how we are doing our best to pursue Christ, to pursue this image of God. And it's a humble reminder for us, we don't have it perfect. So we don't want to make people just like us. And there's another piece of the testimony, really, that honestly helps us do this. So as, as our lives should reflect, man, I'm really striving to know who God is. The other reflection is we testify about God's faithfulness to fulfill his reconciliation promise. Church, this may be one thing that I missed at times growing up in the church, especially because we tend to grow up in environments where we're told what to do. You kind of miss the why, as far as why, sh why should I follow this God's image? It's because we need this piece of the testimony that God is faithful to reconcile. And we see this in the details that Moses includes in this kind of interruption section. Moses tells us the number of Israelite men, 20 years and older, the amounts of materials collected, and he just kind of reiterates how the, the court was made. But there's this really odd emphasis on the pegs. That as he's talking about all this stuff in verse 31, he talks about the pegs, the pegs, the pegs, the bases, the bases, the bases, the grading. And you're like, what is Moses talking about? Why is he emphasizing these things? Church, really the, the short answer, I'll give you the answer up front and show you how we get there. Moses is very intentionally teaching the people of Israel to go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you see this. The Lord had said to Abram, excuse me, I'll get Abraham and Abram back and forth today. But the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. So this is kind of the beginning of the covenant promise here. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So there's a threefold nature to this covenant promise that Israel knows they have. There's a, a great nation piece that their size, their physical size is going to grow. There's a great name that who they are will be known in the world. And there is a, a blessing component that whoever they are and whatever they do is to bless others. So look at the details that Moses gives us. First, that there were 603,550 men, 20 plus years or older. If you think about when Israel entered into Egypt, okay, we're not told, to my knowledge, exactly the number of how many were there, but it was a lot less. Okay, we, we had Jacob, we had his 12 sons, Assuming maybe some of them were married and had some kids. That's, that's probably the number of Israelites that were in Egypt about 400 years prior to this statement. So over the 400 years, they have grown from a family of uh, 50. Let's just throw a number out. 50. To 603,550 just men over the age of 20. Okay? And again... I, I, I won't say how much time I wasted this week trying to see, you know, what kind of growth was this? Was this, uh, you know, exponential and, you know, like how, what was the rate at which they grew? That's, that's missing the point. Israel grew 
from a single family and to an entire nation of people, remember the context, while they were in slavery, while they were in persecution, God is saying, my covenant promise has still been with you, Moses. And so when you are testifying about what it is to be a, a follower of, of God, a follower of Christ, you better make sure the world knows how faithful God is to redeem his people. In all this, this lists of materials that got collected, again, Exodus 36, when this whole plundering Egypt on the way out, Moses is telling the people, look, what God gave you was great, but he called you to turn right back around and lay it down at his feet to his glory. He says, and he says, do this because he is faithful. He's faithful to reconcile. He's faithful to redeem. He got you out of Israel, Egypt. You don't think you could just give him the little bit of gold he gave you back on the way out. And when he gets down, he talks about all the pegs and the hooks. I, I didn't even picture this this week, church, but it, some of you guys probably think I said the hooks of the pillars and their fillets like 50 times in these verses earlier today. All of this, it, it, it's a picture of mobility, right? If it's hooked, you can disassemble it pretty quickly. If it's not a poured concrete slab, you can disassemble it pretty quickly. If it's a, if it's a, a peg, you can disassemble it quickly. Remember, as God is giving the directions for the tabernacle, he's not calling his people to hunker down into one corner of the world and make the whole world come to them. God is saying, my tabernacle, my presence in this world is going to be mobile. It's going to go. So Israel, wherever I go, wherever I lead you, you're going to move. You're going to come into contact. You're going to rub elbows with all the other nations of the world. That's how you're going to be my blessing. Not by hunkering down. Church, they... There's a large narrative in our world right now that, that is calling us to hunker down, to dig in our heels, to define our boxes, and to go to battle. That is not what we see in Moses today. It's kind of tough to be tough to be a blessing to the world when you refuse to move around the world, to be with the world, to allow the nations to, to go be with him. God's basically saying, Israel, you're my proof. The world needs to know who I am. You are my proof, Israel. And the whole world, a lot of them might be able to come find you, but you guys got to go. It should not surprise us that the Great Commission is not just something that Jesus kind of throws out there at the end of his ministry. That same heart has been reflected even here in Exodus 38. Church, these... These two pieces of the testimony fit really well together. That God desires us in the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way we choose to spend our time, where we invest in the relationships that we keep, that, that it would just kind of scream this picture of, we are trying to follow you, God. We are trying to bear your image. And God, you are always, always faithful to reconcile and to redeem. It shows the world, hey, we, we can acknowledge when things are broken. In fact, we should acknowledge when things are broken. There, there, there's a notion in our culture that brokenness is weakness. Yeah, it is. It is. But if this is not a space where we can acknowledge that, we, we cannot claim that there's a God who has a design for life, who has a good design for life. 
if we can't call out, hey, I, I'm struggling with this here. It teaches us to say that this God who created and ordained life, he values it highly because it reflects who he is. In fact, he even made us in his image. He restores what's broken because it's his. These pieces of the testimony complement one another. And I've, I've often wondered if we, we have a hard time with that because that's not the way that our faith was presented to us. So church, I, regardless of how you came to know Christ in this background, I promise this is the testimony that we are seeing in scripture. And to illustrate it for you, hopefully to try to bring some, some practical pieces to this, we're going to look at the book of Titus really quick. Paul essentially says the same thing to Titus that Moses is saying to Israel here. So I'm going to read a portion of, of Titus, and I'll, I'll kind of interject and say, hey, listen to how Moses is telling Israel exactly what Paul is telling Titus. And we could go to other books in the New Testament that would show us, but Titus should speak near and dear to us, church. Paul is writing to Titus because Titus is inheriting this little, small, young church that's still learning what it is to be the people of God. It's out on an island in the middle of a sea on Crete. So it's not people with a Jewish background. It's people who are really for the first time learning what it is to be the people of God. And Paul is writing a letter to Titus to say, hey, this is what you have to hold on to. This is what you do as part of this foundational, formational season of learning what it is to follow God. And I thought, that feels like New River Fellowship. Feels like us. So let's look at what Paul says to Titus in Titus 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 11, beginning and further. I don't have the words on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Moses in Exodus 38 is telling Israel, hey, now that you've been delivered from Egypt, because of this hope that you have in this covenant that God has given you, Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to declare. Paul's telling Titus, Titus, now that you and this Cretan church are working with people who have been saved, in our modern vernacular, they've come to know Christ, they have this hope of the gospel, here's what you need to tell others. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Already off the bat, doesn't feel like a very fun direction that Paul is taking Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy, courtesy toward all people. It's not quite where I was expecting Paul to go. But if we think about it, it's not so crazy. 
Paul starts by saying, be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's telling this young church, in every facet of your culture, there's going to be bosses, employees. There's going to be people above you, right? Why would they ever listen to you if you cannot respect them? Paul doesn't make any qualification to say be submissive to just the Christian rulers and authorities. He says be submissive to rulers and authorities. Do our lives testify such a submission? And if not, why would anybody want to listen? He says be obedient. Do our lives testify obedience? First and foremost to who God is. Paul says, look, if you can't be obedient to God's image, no one would listen to you as you're trying to tell them about God's image, right? Like, you know our human nature. You know if somebody's telling you we're really good at picking up on hypocrites, why would you listen to somebody telling you to bear the image of someone and you're going, you're clearly not doing that. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. There's a bunch of different ways you could take this. One of my, my personal favorite ones is just by thinking, where's our margin in our lives? And if we have got so much going on all the time, have we, have we blocked out room for God? Paul says, speak evil of no one. But Paul, some people are really... They're not good. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Paul, what do you do when they're wrong? Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. But Paul, if I'm gentle, I'm just a doormat. Nobody listens. Be gentle. Do our lives testify to a humility of pursuing God's image? If we're called to a life of humbly pursuing God's image, that humility is not just going to be in that one little corner of our lives. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Man, Paul, you, do you live in our world, Paul? Show perfect courtesy toward all people. I mean, it's kind of bookending the whole submissive rulers and authorities. If we can't be courteous, then why would somebody want to listen? I think the church has forgotten that one today. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul says these, these behaviors are in the image of God. Why should our lives look like this? Why, why these things? Paul says in Ch Titus chapter 3, verse 3, let's continue. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I'm kind of glad we're not there now. But when goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified in his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. Paul says, this is good, guys. This is a good word for you. And I want you to insist 
on these things. Not just listen, not just say, well, that seems nice, but Paul, have you really thought? Insist on these things. So that, why? Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The testimony that convicts to the action in the Spirit. Paul says to live unsubmissive to rulers, unsubmissive to authorities, to live disobedient, to live not every for every good work, to speak evil of others, to quarrel, to be ungentle, to be disrespectful. He says this is to live foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passion, pleasure, malicious, envious, a life marked by hating others and being hated by others. can't tell you how many churches will have some version of the slogan, we want to love God and love our neighbors, right? Excellent. Paul says this life that he says be careful to do these things, he says not doing it, hating others and being hated by others. Quite simply, Paul says if you are filled with the Spirit, if you've been made right by God, if we are bearing his image, our lives is going to look like this. Moses is telling Israel, if our lives are filled with the covenant, we're going to be wrapped up in trying to pursue who God's image is, and we're going to be trying to make sure that, that the world sees his faithfulness to reconcile. We can't do this if our lives are living contrary to what Paul describes in Titus 3 here. And Paul knows, look, we are tempted to leave this testimony of discipleship, church. It does not feel that powerful in light of our world today. But Paul says, here's why. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. He says, all of this is unprofitable and worthless. Each of these, avoid foolish controversies. Don't argue with others. Uh, foolish controversies. Avoid genealogies. This one... You and I don't do this as much today in the same way, but in the ancient world, they said, hey, this is who my ancestor was. You better show me some respect because of who my granddaddy was. Our modern vernacular would say, um, I'm a follower of so-and-so, right? I listen to so-and-so. I get my teaching. I get my, my information I get from so-and-so. Don't respect me because of whose name I'm under. Paul says, if your name is under Christ, who else are you putting up there? Avoid genealogies. Avoid dissensions. Do not break from the unity we have in Christ. Avoid quarrels about the law. Do not argue over correctness by this standard. This is, I mean, I, again, I'm not being picky just to go to Titus. This is all stuff Paul has said in other, other letters, but the context of Titus is really good for us. He says to live this way is unprofitable and worthless. Paul even takes it a step further in verses 10, 11, how serious it is. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Paul says, you cannot sacrifice the testimony of who I am and who I have made you to be for anything. And if there are those among, Paul's even writing to this church, he says, it is such value importance to the church in its fledgling season that if there's someone in you that thinks otherwise, don't go with them. Right? It, sounds, it sounds harsh, but Paul says, look, church, you cannot lose sight of the testimony that you are called to have to the rest of the world because you are doing this in the name of Christ. 
God has put his image into his people and said, you are my representative to the rest of the world. You are my priesthood. This is your responsibility, Israel. This is our responsibility, church. It's a big responsibility to walk living in the name of Christ. Paul says, don't take it lightly. Moses says, don't take it lightly. But church, as we talked about this last week, if we are going to testify, testify about our faithfulness to pursue bearing God's image and his faithfulness to fulfill his reconciliation, this is all done with the Holy Spirit, church. That I'm not, we are not being called to do this on our own. This is not a, a, a pastor angrily telling you what to go do and figure it out on your own. God says, I know that this is what you have to do. I know that this is important, so important. I'm going to come dwell in you and help you do this. And I fear sometimes when we forget that we have the Holy Spirit, it is easy to feel convicted by this, but not convicted in a way to do something just weighed by guilt because we have no clue how we're going to do this well. This is not a guilt trip this morning, church. You have been filled with the Spirit. This is a life we are truly capable of, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of community, all this that we talked about last week. This is why we gather here on Sunday mornings to praise and worship God, to be reminded of this. This is why we gather in our homes every other week in our community groups to be like, hey, how are you doing with this? This is hard, right? And to encourage one another and strengthen one another. So as we wrestle with this, let's close together in prayer in the Holy Spirit today. We say, O oh Lord God, who inhabits eternity, the heavens declare thy glory and the earth thy riches. The universe is thy temple, thy presence fills immensity. Yet thou hast of thy pleasure created life and communicated happiness. Thou hast made me what I am and has given me what I have. In thee I live and move and have my being. Thy providence has set the bounds of my habitation and it wisely administers all my affairs. I thank thee for thy riches to me in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of him in thy word, where I behold his person, character, his grace, his glory, his humiliation, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. Lord, give me to feel in need of your continual saviorhood and to cry with Job, I am vile, to cry with Peter, I perish, with the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. Subdue in me the love and sin. Let me know the need of renovation as well as of forgiveness in order to serve and enjoy thee forever. I come to thee in the all-prevailing name of Jesus this morning, God, with nothing of my own to plead, no works, no worthiness, no promises. I am often straying. I knowingly oppose thy authority. I often abuse thy goodness. God, much of my guilt arises from simply my religious privileges that you've given me your spirit, and yet I do not live in him. God, this morning I'm not careless of thy favor or regardless of thy glory. Impress me deeply with a sense of thine omnipresence, that thou art about my path, my ways, my lying down, my end. In your name we pray, amen.